Dave Chapman's Northern Stars You Should Know on episode 308 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. So welcome back to the show, Dave. Well, uh, thank you very much. You guys have an awesome show and uh, I feel quite honored to be asked back and to take part in this. Uh, I guess it's just going to be a six part series on stars you should know. I'm I'm honored to be here. Yeah, well, thanks. It's great to have you. So um, just before we get going, uh, we have a bit of a thank you to a couple of Patreon listeners and Patreon supporters, Shane. Yeah, uh, let me just take a quick look here. So uh, thank you, Dennis and Daniel, new Patreon supporters. We definitely appreciate it. And as always, thanks to all of the Patreon supporters. Uh, we uh, We appreciate all of you. Yeah, we do. And we have some uh, really exciting plans coming up. We'll talk a little bit more about those in the next show because we want to get on to Dave. But uh, Dave, thank you. You you are also a Patreon supporter. We thank you for your Patreon support. Well, I like I say, I, I like what you guys are doing. And uh, uh, it you know, if if everybody gave a little bit, uh, I think it would make your you know your show better and a lot easier to produce. So I thought I'd get in there and do my bit. Yeah, well, thank you so much. We yeah, certainly thanks. appreciate that. That's great. Thank you. A little bit of background on Dave before we get going. He is a longtime collaborator um, of mine and a longtime listener of the show and, and a supporter of the show. Uh, he's been on the show at least a few times before. He is the past editor of the RASC's Observer's Handbook. He's a longtime contributor to the RASC Journal. Um, Dave has really been involved in the amateur astronomy community uh, throughout Canada for, for many, many years. And uh, he recently wrote a book with Kathy LeBlanc on the Mi'kmaq moons. And this is the seasons in Mi'kmaq. But today he's going to talk to us about more stars we should know in the northern sky. So again, Dave, we're really excited to uh, to have you back. And we're going to do a little bit of a series, it looks like. Yeah, well, um, I started out with a bang in that a uh, couple of months ago there in January. We did uh, the winter stars. And... Uh, that was a pretty easy one to do because, you know, there were quite, there's about a dozen really brilliant stars in the winter sky. So uh, kind of made it easy to uh, make it an interesting show. I was a little worried about this one because uh, the, these stars that we're going to talk about this time, uh, they're, they're not brilliant. Uh, they're, they're bright. I guess they're considered to be bright. So you should still be able to see them even from the city, but they're not as brilliant as the winter stars. But when I got into looking at what stars I wanted to do and looking at their stories, I found that even though they're not as brilliant, they're every bit as interesting. So I'm hoping mm -hmm. that people will enjoy this show as much as they did the last one. Yeah, we certainly heard a lot from uh, listeners when you were on in, in January doing the uh, the winter stars. Um, I was we were actually kind of surprised how many emails and that that we had mm, uh, yeah. asking that that we do make this into a series because we were kind of kicking that around as an idea. And it looks like the schedule is going to be something like this, although it may may change by uh, by the time we get them on air. But looks like we're going to do one for the spring stars. You should know in May. We're going to do the summer stars. You should know in July. The uh, fall and autumn stars you should know in September, and then the south polar stars in November. So that looks like a pretty good uh, schedule there. I'm excited to have all those coming up. Yeah, I have only one regret about this show is that uh, one of the listeners that was following us closely and made some very complimentary remarks is, in fact, from the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, and I have to apologize to him because he's not going to be able to go out. <laughs> 
see these stars <laughs> we're going to talk about. But maybe it will encourage him to make a trip north, you know, to 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 experience these. But you know, in the fullness of time, we will go to the South Stars, That's and right. and we'll talk about the South Stars that you should know, which are ev- I mean, they're totally exciting for me. I'm I'm so we're going to end with a bang too because the South the South Polar Stars are amazing. Excellent. All right. Well, where would you like to get started this afternoon, Dave? Well, uh, I guess we could just get right into it. Uh, yeah, you guys, good. you guys, jump in when you have uh, pertinent questions. Uh, so, like as usual, uh, the the names of the stars. I'm I'm going to go with the classic Greek and Roman names. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of material on those names, and 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 you know, like it or not, that's that's what we've ended up with with the in the International Astronomical Union, the, the worldwide uh, organization that. Uh, is uh, known for organizing names of things in the sky and uh, kicking uh, bodies out of the planet club, that kind of thing. Uh, I will, I will make mention of some indigenous connections when it seems appropriate, but uh, these are the names that are on most star charts and, uh, and um, planetarium programs and such. And the, the the classic names are used in some go-to telescope software, such as Skywatcher, SinScan, and Celestron. And we had a bit of a discussion this uh, about this last time where, you know, you go to align your telescope and it says, you know, point your star, at, point your telescope at Shedar. And you're going, where the hell's Shedar? You know, so, so that's why we're going with that. Um, before we get into the stars themselves, I just want to remind people about, I'm going to be talking about the different spectral classes of stars. So stars come in different colors and temperatures and going from white through yellow, orange into red, the sequence of letters, which was determined by Annie Jump Cannon are O, B, A, F, G, K, and M. So the O stars are like the blue, white, the B and A are white, Fs are yellows, FG, Ks are orange, and M can be a very deep, deep red star. Uh, if, so, Sorry, Dave, to, to cut you off there. We were sort of bantering a little bit before we pressed record here on the spectral classes, and yeah. you know, I fully admitted I know very little about this. So yes. <laughs> I do have okay. a question. Does, does that O through M represent uh, like the life cycle as well of a star? Um, no, I'm not an expert on this as well. You might want to bring somebody in who knows okay. stuff backwards and forwards, <laughs> yeah, no but problem. usually when a star forms, it has a certain mass and when it has a certain mass, it, it, you know, it burns with a certain amount of heat and gets to a certain temperature. So the main sequence stars, there's a correlation between the, the, the temperature, the temperature and the brightness and the and the masses, uh, but then you have these. Then you have like giants and supergiants, as opposed to normal stars, which are actually called dwarf stars. So it, it gets very complex. So it's mm-hmm. it's not a. I, I wouldn't say that a star goes through all of those colors in its life. Like a big star will just burn white hot or blue white hot, and uh, and then the reason stars turn red and so on uh, can be because they uh, use up their hydrogen fuel and so on. But uh, yeah, that's not something I think we can do justice to in a few seconds. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that's fair. Appreciate it, Dave. There's a lot of material on that available, uh, but it's a huge subject. But... Okay. So uh, 
why don't we just jump right into the to the north uh north polar stars so i've I've chosen 12 kind of an arbitrary number and like i say they're not as brilliant as the winter stars they range from second magnitude to fourth magnitude okay to find even in the city maybe the ones that are on the fourth magnitude end depending on how bad your light pollution is you might need binoculars to pick them out uh but uh, most of them you can just look up and see. Like um, the most of the stars in the Big Dipper are, are visible, even even from city uh, spots. Uh, out of the twelve that I'm going to talk about, four are classic uh, celestial navigation stars that you would use, like with a sextant and so on, if you were you know navigating that way. I don't know how many people do that anymore, but there, there's a special category. There's 58 sort of traditional navigation stars that are tabulated in nautical almanac and the astronomical almanac and we're going to talk about four of those so nine out of the first nine out of the 12 are in fact alignment stars used by skywatcher and celestron so that's one reason uh the uh those stars are have been included and 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 that's one reason you should know them uh the last three are kind of special for other reasons, and, and we'll get to that as, as we, we go to them. Um, so I'm going to start with Ursa Major, um, and most people identify, they, they, they don't see Ursa Major in its entirety. They what they, they pick out the Big Dipper, which are seven stars, which it's an asterism, which is in fact part of the Ursa Major constellation. So, you know, we know that as the Great Bear, and there's other names for that. Uh, asterism such as the plow or uh, the I think uh, the cart you know the cart being pulled by horses yeah in northern horses. Europe I think it's the cart yeah. yeah the wane is that what I call it the wane anyway yep uh, anyhow certainly al- almost well almost every culture in the, in the northern hemisphere recognizes that that set of stars in one way or another so and we're going to start with that because when I do um when I do sky tours at Keji and places like that, I always start with the Big Dipper because most people can recognize it. And then you can sort of work out from there and find other stars. So so uh, as we move along here, I, I do want to mention to people what they might want to do is uh, uh, consult a, a, a star chart or atlas or, or, or your app on your phone with Polaris in the center. And uh, you can be able to, you'll be able to follow along um, we there is a chart that I made that uh, I believe was going to be uh, posted along with the the, the show notes. So uh, if you're really hard up, you can go and download or just look at um, my chart, which and uh, the only stars uh, mentioned on that chart are the ones that we're going to talk about. So it's very simple. Yeah, so, and I'm, glad, I'm glad you mentioned that, Dave, just as an FYI to everybody that we will post the show notes to actualastronomy.com. Just uh, if anybody wants to have that reference and not worry about writing everything down here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So all the things I'm going to say pretty much are going are gonna to be in the notes. Uh, I, might, I might think of a few details as I go. So Ursa Major, as I said, it's the Great Bear. Um, uh, the three-letter acronym is UMA, capital U, capital M, little A, Great Bear, Ursa Major. And the first couple of stars we're going to look at are the are what are called the pointer stars. And uh, I'll explain what they are when we get to it. Uh, so the first one is Dubé, which is Alpha Ursa Major. And 
it the name means the back of the bear. So it's it's in the bowl. It's in the bowl. And if if you're looking at the dipper as like you would normally hold it, uh, it it's kind of like the right hand of right hand part of the bowl. And and it's definitely uh associated with a bear. And what's very interesting about this is that many cultures recognize that that that's collection of stars one way or the other as a bear for instance the europeans do many or almost all of the uh, indigenous people in north america recognize that as a bear and you know who knows how that happened all i can say is that it really attests to how long this constellation has been around in human in the human uh, uh cognition you know it's it's been uh, people have been aware of this for some time and they've carried it around with them as they migrate so Dube is a magnitude 1.8 star. It is a variable multiple star, a orange a K0 uh, spectral class. And uh, it, it's one of the classic navigation stars. What what makes it a classic navigation star, Dave? The people who worked this out, and I can't tell you the history of it, but what they needed to do is they, they needed to have relatively bright stars throughout the whole celestial sphere so that navigators could find stars uh, that they could shoot their sextant at and, and make measurements on. Okay. And, and because their positions were tabulated in a book called the uh, Nautical Almanac, from, from the measurements of the apparent position of the star and, and knowing the time, and you would have to have a really good clock. And, and that's why it was so important for an accurate clock to be uh, to, to be constructed that would work on a ship. I mean, that's a whole story in itself. But if you knew what the time was in Greenwich and you could make measurements of the star uh, where you were, you can do a bunch of mathematical um, calculations and figure out your latitude and longitude. Okay. And then you normally do this with more than one star and sometimes the planets too. I think you could shoot the planets and then you could come up with a little error circle of where you are. And uh, I did this once uh with a guy on the research ship that I was working with, I, the navigator there, and we actually took the sextant out and, you know, we shot some stars and stuff, and then we sat down and did the calculation, and, like, we were off by about a nautical mile, which isn't bad. Wow. So, yeah. so Dave, just, and I was going to ask about that really quick, because you actually have practical experience being on the sea. Do you just want to maybe give people that context really quick? I was a defense scientist and I did seagoing experiments on underwater acoustics. So I spent a lot of time from on the scientific side, but there were times when I used to have to direct where the ship would go because of the type of experiments that we had to do. So I was very interested in navigation and I was a frequent visitor to the bridge and welcome, a welcome visitor, I would say. So I, I learned a lot of this stuff in practical terms uh, by, you know, directing where the ship should go to do our experiments and, Mm -hmm. getting chummy with the with the officers of the watch and and i would go up every time we went down south uh, which was not terribly often i would always make a point of figuring out when the southern cross would be uh, culminating and i'd go up to the bridge and i'd say i want to see the southern cross and uh so they'd turn out all the lights and everything and then we'd, oh, wow. we'd look and and we'd and i said there's the southern cross and and i'd get all excited because that was the first time i ever saw it was from the deck of a ship right oh wow and so uh, and of course the southern cross although 
uh, we're sort of getting ahead of ourselves, but be, there's no real Southern pole star like Polaris, but yeah. the Southern Cross points towards the the South Celestial Pole. So mm-hmm. if you can see the Southern Cross, you can get a, an idea of where South is, you know, by following the cross. So, so Dubé and the other six stars, well, the other three bowl stars represents the she-bear Muin in the Mi'kmaq sky story, Muin and the seven bird hunters. And there's... Uh, there's notes. In, there's a link in the notes to where you can go and uh, see that story on a video, and uh, maybe even there's a book you can get if you want to learn about that. But only the bull stars are the bear, because the other stars of the handle are birds, and in fact, that's only three birds. The f- other four birds are in the constellation of Bootes. So it's it's quite a complex uh, system they have there, and a very interesting story that goes through the year. And now, having said that, I'll move on. Uh, so the other po- uh, pointer star is Merak, which is the one in the chart. It's it's farther south, okay, let's say, than Dubé. That's that's one way to put it. It's Beta Ursa Major, and and it uh, in the Greek-Roman tradition, it's the loins of the bear. So so you're getting down to the loins, and then the, the, the dimmer stars below are the legs and the toes and whatnot. So... If you if you try to trace out the whole Ursa Major constellation, so it's a little dimmer. It's magnitude two point three. It's also a variable star, uh, but it's a it's a lot whiter. It's an A zero star, so it's a hotter, whiter star. And I mentioned that they're variable or multiple stars because it's amazing how many stars are in fact variable and or multiple. Like there's hardly any stars that are just plain stars in the sky. Some are more variable and others and some of the double stars are more evident than others but this it's quite common in fact so Marak and Dubé are the pointers they're about five degrees apart uh, if you're trying to measure distances in the sky if you want to know what five degrees are the distance between the pointers is five I'm going to come back to the pointers when we talk about Polaris how to find Polaris okay and and just so people know and we talk about this um quite a bit is that to Another way to find five degrees is that your fist at arm's length is 10 degrees in the nighttime yeah. sky. So those stars would be about half a fist length. Yes. Yep. Yes. In fact, in some in most of the RESC type publications, there's a, a diagram involving the Big Dipper, and it shows different uh, distances, uh, like five degrees, 20 degrees, this kind of thing. So uh, if you're interested in being able to measure those kinds of uh angular distances in the sky you you know, the the uh, the big dipper is a very good starting point for that excellent okay so uh, the third star i want to talk about in uh in ursa major is mizar and it's the middle star in in the handle in the three handles stars it's the middle star and it's zeta ursa major and okay. it goes by a lot of names uh normally it it it, it's paired with Alcor, which is a dimmer star that's close by. So a lot of the names for this star uh, end up being like pair names. Like some people call it the horse and rider. Yep. Okay, I don't, I can't remember which one's which, but horse and rider. Uh, the the when I was we were talking about the Migma. Mizar is a chickadee, and Alcor, its small companion, is in fact the birch bark pot that chickadee is carrying with him because he's anticipating a feast. It's a very interesting, uh, I, I'm not going to get into it now, but 
you're going to say, how can I cook in a birch bark pot? But it's a very interesting answer. But they did make uh, cooking pots with birch bark. Mizar and Alcor to, to the Mi'kmaq are the chickadee and cooking pot. Also, the uh, Mizar, it's the center star in the handle of the Big Dipper. And that was one of the first stars, I think, that I learned the name of for for the primary reason that in uh, Terrence Dickinson's Night Watch, he, he talks about uh, splitting it with your eye. Yes, uh, I was I was getting to that actually. Okay. It is <laughs> no, but it's good. It's good that you know these things. You know, go to the head of the class, Chris. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll 12, Twelve stars you should know, and I think you know. I think I think you're three for three so far. So oh, good stuff. I hope I hope that we we'll give you a gold star or something at the end. <laughs> well, I told you these these are so oddly enough when we were talking before before the show. These stars are all like my best friends in the sky. It turned out, and I I knew all of the stars that Dave had listed here. So keep going, Dave. So uh, I said it was a famous vision test, and I think I made a mistake in the notes. So please check this before you post them. I said they're twelve seconds of arc apart, but that can't be. It has to be twelve minutes of arc. They're twelve minutes of arc apart, and. I, I believe that in the Roman Legion, they, they used that test of whether you could see those two stars as two separate stars as a test for whether your vision was adequate. Now, a, a, a lot of people say it's easy peasy. And um, and then there's a bunch of people who say, where's Mizar? <laughs> it says on Wikipedia anyway, that they're 12 minutes of arc. Yeah. So maybe could you correct that on your show notes? Will do. Yeah. It's a famous te- test of vision, and 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 if you go into the books, you know, some of the references, you'll see that there's a, a ton of stuff written about these two stars. They're, they're very famous. Alcor is a true double, but there is another star in between them, I think eighth magnitude, which is a true double star. So um, it's a multiple star system. It, it, there's, there's a lot going on in that system, but it is a very striking uh, multiple star system. I always like showing people that in my telescope. Mm-hmm. Mizar and Alcor and and uh, uh, and and then there's this other one, this eighth magnitude one that's in there. And I had the great pleasure actually when we were visited at Kujik by Elder Serena Francis wanted to come down and see what we're doing at the Dark Sky Weekend. Oh, cool. And uh, and she she part she didn't participate. She sort of observed what we were doing. And then I said at some point I said, "Oh, uh, I'm going to have to leave you now." because uh, I have to go over to this other place. And she said, well, where are you going? We want to go with you. And I said, well, I'm just going down to the beach because they've got telescopes set up. So we went down to the beach and she came along and I was trying to think. I said, so I said to the guys on the telescope, it was, there were two um, uh, teenagers, uh, Fiona and uh, Keegan. And I said, could you, could you show us uh, Alcor and Mizar? And of course they had it all go to is they got there in no time. And then I showed elder, uh, Serena Francis, I said, that's the chickadee and the birch bark pot. Oh, cool. And and she was so excited to see that through the telescope, eh? And and I said, there's this other star in there, you know, anyway, it was kind of fun to do that. It was kind of a, 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 a nice moment. I'm going to move on from Ursa Major, as exciting as it is, and I'm going to go to Ursa Minor. And, um, and I'm going to tell you now how to use the pointers. Uh, Dubé and Merak uh, to find Polaris. So you go to the bowl of the Big Dipper. Uh, Dubé and Merak are the pointers. Uh, so you go from Merak to Dubé and you go six times that distance in that direction and you will find Polaris. 
Alpha Ursa Minor. So Ursa Minor is the small bear, okay? Yeah. UMI. And uh, the brightest star is Alpha uh, uh, is Alpha Ursa Minor. Polaris, we know it as the North Star. It has a bunch of different names. Um, and of course, this is a very good navigation aid if you get... Uh, if you're trying to orient yourself in the woods or at sea and the sky is clear, <laughs> uh, you can find the North Star. You find the North Star in the sky and just go plumb down to the horizon, and that's north on the ground. And uh, I always teach people that uh, when when we're doing sky tours. Okay. Um, uh, it's, you know, I think we all know that sort of it's like Astronomy 101, but uh, uh it, it's worth doing this because people have a lot of funny ideas about Polaris. One of which is a lot of people think that Polaris is the brightest star in the sky. And I don't know where that came from, but you, but they're always surprised when I say that's Polaris. They go, well, wait, what, what, that star over there is way brighter. What's what are you, what are you talking about? No, Polaris is not the brightest star in the sky. It is in fact a magnitude two point oh and it barely makes it on the list of the 50 brightest stars in the handbook like it's like number 48 or something it's written out at the top not near the bottom if it was any dimmer it wouldn't be part of that list so mm. it's it's it, you know it's it's a reasonably bright star but it's not brilliant uh but the interesting thing about that is that you have to go from the north celestial pole Okay, so why is it important? It happens to be near the North Celestial Pole at the moment, so everything seems to rotate around that star. So it's it's kind of like a, a, a an indicator of the North Celestial Pole, but it hasn't always been that case because the Earth, as it spins, wobbles like a top, and over a period of 26,000 years, the pole points in different parts of the sky. So... But you have to go about 30 degrees from Polaris to find one that's brighter. So in a sense, it's the brightest star in that part of the sky, like a, a, a pretty big chunk of the sky. Mm -hmm. And that star that is brighter than Polaris is Dube. So you have to go all the way back to Dube to find a star brighter than Polaris. And then if you imagine a circle, you know, in the sky, uh, uh, that uh, radius, all of the stars within that radius are dimmer than Polaris. So, mm. um, so it's, there's no mistaking Polaris, even though it's not terribly bright because there's nothing really like it anywhere near it. So hmm. it's, it's um, one of my favorite doubles, actually. I, yes, I look at it, it almost every time I'm, I'm observing. Yes, it is. And again, it's another one of these variable double star. Uh, it's a uh, F uh f7 yellow orange star f7 is also of course a classic navigation star of course mm -hmm. <laughs> and the interesting thing is and we're going to get to this later too it is in fact not only just a, a variable star but it is a example of a delta cepheid variable star it, it, and that has a very special meaning which will come up later it's getting brighter and its variability is decreasing over time, like over historical mm -hmm. time. So it's a very interesting star to study as a variable star because it is not stable. Don't they study this variable star at St. Mary's University? Well, I know that Dave Turner is very interested in this. The professor Emeritus, Emeritus Professor Dave Turner yeah. uh, is very interested in, in Polaris. And in fact, uh, he's, one of, he's old school. Like he goes out and he estimates brightness with his eye. Mm -hmm. Like he's one of these visual observers. He doesn't, maybe he uses uh, photometry in that, but he, he, he makes a point of doing this with his, with his eye. And he has been, yes, very interested in Polaris as a variable star for most of his career. 
So yeah. I, I can't say much more than that. I, I only point that St. Mary's is my alma mater and uh, yeah. I attended some of his lectures on that. <laughs> no, he's, uh, he's pretty keen on that. Yeah. Very nice. Thank you. Um, I think we've pretty much covered that one, but we will get to the importance of Delta Cepheid variable stars. See, this is all very carefully constructed. We, we're getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, but there's some really cool things that happen near the end. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the other star in Ursa Minor that I want to uh, point out is uh, it's Beta Ursa Minor, and it's called Kochab. It and the star next to it, which is, happens to be called Furcad, but it's not one of the 12. They're a kind of a little pair of stars, almost like the pointers. They go by the name sometimes the guardians of the pole because they, they're always circling around the pole much closer than Ursa Major does or the, the Big Dipper does. So they're, they look like they're circling around guarding the pole. So they're often called the guardians of the pole. They're kind of like Thuban and Merak of, of the Little Dipper. Yes. And uh, in fact, when I get to El Tannen, I'm going to say more about that. Okay. It's all... Woven together, Chris, all this stuff is like a <laughs> network of stories and the connections. It's a magnitude 2.1 star. It's a, an orange giant, K4. It happens to be a classic navigation star, and it's, a, again, a variable double star. So I think we were talking before about whether stars are giant or super giant or regular size. And you can have, you can have these uh, different temperature stars and different colors of stars, but how big they are they're not necessarily correlated. So whether the star is a big star or a little star, they could still be like an orange sized star, but not, not necessarily a super giant or a giant. So there's, there's many dimensions to stars as you will see here. You, here we go. It is an orange giant star. So that means it's physically way bigger than the sun. Like it's 50 times bigger than the sun. Okay. And get this. It's 500 times more luminous than the sun, right? 500 times more bright than the sun. And the reason it's so dim, of course, is that it's it's a lot, a lot, a long ways away. But it's it is in fact a, a giant star and and you know bigger and brighter than than the sun. It's hard to believe when you look up and see it. We're gonna get back to some of these stars later because when we get into the other constellations, I'm gonna move on now to Cassiopeia or Cassiopeia. And uh, one way to find Cassiopeia is you start with Mizar. We know where Polaris and Mizar are now. So mm-hmm. you follow uh, Mizar way over to pa- Polaris and keep on going about the same distance, and you come across the classic pattern of the Cassiopeia. And uh, according to my friend Quinn, depending on where it is in the sky, it's it, you either see it as the the, the the M for McDonald's or the W for Wendy's. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it, people often say it's an M or a W, but... But it could be either, depending on how it's situated and how how you're lying on the ground or what have you. So it's either an M or a W. My friend Chris Young, who who studies star lore, says that in some cultures they see it as a tarantula, and you can almost you can kind of see that it, mm-hmm. it's like looking at a tarantula head on, like a spider. Mm-hmm. And there's many other characterizations of Cassiopeia. Well, Cassiopeia, of course, is the uh, queen of ancient Ethiopia, which it was a much bigger place then than what Ethiopia is today. And she has famously um, got into trouble with the gods for either saying that she was prettier, the sea nymphs, or her daughter was. Anyway, it that led to the whole sky story of Cassiopeia, Andromeda, Cepheus, 
uh, Perseus, Cetus, the whale, Medusa. There's this huge story about that, uh, which takes up a huge part of the sky, right? Massive legend. Anyway, she's the queen, the, the vain queen of, of Ethiopia. So let's get into the stars. So I'm going to be looking at half of the M or half of the W. On my chart, Navi is not really in a good place. So I'm looking at three stars that form half of the W or half of the, the M. The first one I'm going to talk about is Shadar, and that is uh, Alpha Cassiopeia. And it, it represents the breast of Cassiopeia or uh, the approximate location of her breast in you know, classical mythology. It's magnitude 2.2. It's a multiple star. K0, it's an orange star as well. And it's one of the classic navigation stars. And of course, I told you before that the first nine of all of these stars are used in in the, the go-to telescopes to, to find their way. So it's kind of the middle of, if you think of the W of Cassiopeia broken up into two kind of arrowheads. It's it's the middle star and one of the arrowheads. The the one that's at the end of the W or M is uh, called Calf, and it's Beta Cass Cassiopeia. And the name relates to a stained hand. I'm not sure why it's called that. There's no rhyme or reason to some of these names, but that's that is what it means, and it's slightly dimmer. Magnitude 2.3. It's also a variable double star, uh, an F2 yellow white giant. Mm -hmm. And it has an interesting variability, which mm -hmm. would be, I think, hard to, probably hard to detect visually. But maybe if you had uh, a photometer or some sort of photographic method, it varies 6% in brightness over a very short period, two and a half hours. So that would be an interesting project to try to, I mean, that's something you could potentially do in a night if you had the right kind of gear, you know. And I think there's a way of just taking photographs and then using the surrounding stars to kind of calibrate the brightness system. And then you you should be able to see that variation. So there's a lot of people work in that. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting, I didn't know that it varied that quickly. And the final star in this trio uh, is called Navi. And I really like this one because Navi is the star the name you will see in some charts and you know in sky safari and place like that and it's kind of like the middle star of the w or the m calf shidar and navi are all kind of together there and navi is not an international astronomical union name i looked it up in the list of iau stars and it doesn't come up so why is it called navi well it turns out well first of all it's gamma cassiopeia so it's like technically the third brightest very similar to the other two Magnitude 2.2, it's also a variable double star. It's a B0 star, blue-white, so a lot whiter, bluer, very hot. And the reason it's called Navi is because astronaut Gus Grissom, his middle name is Ivan. And when he when, when the astronauts were doing uh, celestial navigation, I guess uh, this star didn't have a name, and he, he, he decided he was going to call it Navi, which is his middle name spelled backwards. And it was just his own little joke that he he gave it a little nickname, Navi. Huh. But when he passed away, many people decided they would honor him by including this name in, in their star charts and, and whatnot. But it is not an official name, but it's certainly in Sky Safari. It is, in fact, one of the um, alignment stars for telescopes. So that's why you should know that name. But I thought that was a really cool story about why it's called that. And it's a BE star. 
I honestly don't really understand anything about BE star. The BE doesn't mean beryllium, which I was, that's what I thought. It's got nothing to do with beryllium. They're rapidly rotating stars. It ra- rotates 150 times faster than the sun. Imagine that. Wow. I mean, the sun rotates once in 30 days, so I don't know if you can do the math there, but uh, rapidly rotates, and that's why it's it's of particular interest. Mary Lou Whitehorn, former president of the RSC, she did a, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, she did a master's thesis on uh, BE stars. So she, she would, if you want to know more about BE stars, you should get her on the show. Yeah, that would be a great idea. So uh, w- what more to say about Cassiopeia? Uh, one thing you can say about these three stars, Shedar, Kaf, and Navi, I mentioned that they're kind of like the point of an arrowhead. And if you follow that arrowhead, uh, it's not dead on, but you can follow that arrowhead to find the Andromeda galaxy. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you're looking, there's different ways you can find Andromeda, but this is one way is you you find a, uh, you find um, Cassiopeia and you figure out which three stars are the one we're talking about, Kaf, Shadar, and and Cass and Navi. And you follow that arrowhead and you you'll find Andromeda. And on my chart, which you're going to post, mm-hmm. uh, the Andromeda galaxy is a little kind of partial ellipse up in the upper right corner. It's not labeled, but it's there. I don't know if you notice that. It's it's not a it's not a, a glitch. It's actually the Andromeda galaxy. That is uh, Cassiopeia. Now we're getting to some uh, slightly less distinct constellations. Uh, so let's start with Draco. Did you say Draco or Draco? Draco? Hey, go either sure. way. Go either I, way. If somebody says Draco, I say Draco just to be annoying. Okay. So it's like potato, <laughs> potato. <laughs> you can make a song. You say Draco, <laughs> I say. Anyway. We won't uh, I See, I, I, I took Latin. I feel that should be Draco. Anyway, it's clearly the dragon uh, in many c- cultures or a snake. And in uh, Greek mythology, it's the dragon that guarded the golden fleece. And the golden fleece is the prize that Jason and the Argonauts, not the football team, the original Argonauts. <laughs> <laughs> Jason Damn. and the Argonauts went on their ship, which was called Argo. Okay, that's why they're called Argonauts. The ship was called Argo, and they sailed off and had all these adventures. But one of the things that they needed to do was to come back with this golden fleece. And they had to, uh, I don't know if they battled the dragon or just did a deke around it or something. Uh, But the dragon was involved guarding the golden fleece. This is an aside, and we'll get to it when we get to the southern stars. But the ship Argo Navis, the boat Argo, is in the sky and it used to be a constellation called Argo Navis, but it got broken up into three constellations. Carina, which is the keel or the basic part of the boat. Vela, which is the sail of the boat. And Puppis, which is the poop deck of the, of the boat where you steer it from. We'll get to that when we talk about the Southern Stars. But, you know, they're all connected, right? Mm-hmm. So um, Draco is a long, meandering serpent of uh, very fairly dim stars but in the summertime they're basically overhead there's quite a few interesting doubles well, i'm going to talk about two stars uh, the brightest star is l tannin which is <laughs> for some reason it's not alpha this happens so much in in uh, in astronomy it's gamma Dra- draco draconis and it's the serpent or dragon the name of the star means also serpent or dragon and it's a magnitude 2.2 uh, double star um, and it's an orange-red K5 star, 
it's one of the classic navigation stars in that part of the sky. It's the brightest. Apparently, it's moving towards Earth, and in one and a half million years, if you can wait, it'll be. The, it might be the brightest star in the sky. Oh wow! I'm told hmm. so because you know stars have what they call proper motion, where they move in relation to one another, and they're not just moving on a two-dimensional you know sphere. They're moving in and out radially as well. And apparently, uh, L. Tannen is heading for us, and and may become the brightest star in the sky. Here's something I found out while I was doing this. If you want to find El Tannen, and, and Chris, you, you mentioned that the Kohab, Kochab and uh, Furkat, the guardians of the pole, were kind of like kin to the pointer stars in the in the Big Dipper. Mm-hmm. But if if you take those guardians of the pole stars and use them as pointers in the opposite sense, going away from the Dipper, going below the Dipper or south of the Dipper, it's not exact, but it will lead you to the uh, part of the sky that's inhabited by El Tannen. So yeah, I can, yeah, I'm following that along. Very good. Yeah, I don't know how that looks on a sphere because this is a bit distorted. But I think I'm going to try that next time I'm outside and just see how good that is. But uh, I, I was told this that you could use those to find El, El Tannen. The other star that's of interest in Draco Draco is Thuban, which is for some reason called Alpha. Draconis, and it's the dragon's tail, even though there seem to be stars beyond it uh, in relation to where the head is. There's no rhyme or reason sometimes to how things are called. And it's uh, one way to find Thuban, but we already know where Mizar and Kochab are, and it's basically, uh, Thuban is basically midway between those two. So that's an easy way to find Thuban. Um it's not terribly bright. It's magnitude 3.7. So, you know, you might have a little bit of a job finding it. But if you know where to look, you'll be able to see it. Again, a variable double star. It's a white giant A0 spectral class. And here's the thing. Where did I read this? Herschel or somebody like that, or Kepler or somebody, they feel like it might have been brighter hmm. uh, in the past, like within historical times. And that could be why it's labeled alpha. Maybe it was brighter than than the other stars at one time. This is why I think this is interesting, because people talk about the precession of the pole and so on, and and how Vega at one time used to be the pole star. And then they say, oh, 6,000 years ago when they built the pyramids, Thuban was the pole star. And I'm going, what? 3.7 magnitude? What kind of a pole star is that? You can barely Mm. see it. Mm. But if it was actually brighter back then, that it makes a whole lot of sense, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's worth looking into. But it was the pole star when the Egyptians built the pyramids. And in fact, you know, the pyramids aren't completely solid. They've got these passages in them. And apparently, I guess this wouldn't happen now, but at the time they built the pyramids, you you were able to look up this passage and look out into the sky. And there, Thuban would be there in that patch of sky that mm-hmm. was framed by the pyramids. So so it's it's it seriously was the pole star. And and they built a passage to take advantage of that. So they they knew where the pole was. And we, we're on the we're on the home stretch here. We're going to move on to Cepheus. We've got a couple of stars. No yeah. super bright stars. I think Dave, these are two of my favorite stars in the sky. I have to. Oh, say. that's great. That's they're great. the stars of this show. They're the stars <laughs> of this show. Which is why I ended with them. So they're not navigation stars. They're not alignment stars, but they're very important stars. And this is why you should know these stars. Cepheus is the king 
the long-suffering king of ancient Ethiopia, I would say, because he was the one that was sent to, to go to the oracle, sent a sea monster, Cetus, to ravage the coast of Ethiopia. And Cepheus went to the oracle and said, like, what can we do? And they said, okay, the only thing you can do is sacrifice Andromeda. That's the only thing you could do. So anyway, he 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 was he had the sad duty of carrying out that task, but we know that she survived because Perseus came to rescue her. That's like the 25 cent edition of the story. You should go and read the whole story. It's a, a beautiful story. They lived happily ever after. But uh Andromeda was promised to somebody else and he had to fight them off. It's mm-hmm. you know, those Greek legends are very bloody. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not all sweetness and light with the Greek myth myths. Okay, so Cepheus was the long suffering king of Ethiopia. It's kind of hard to pick him out in the sky unless it's nice and dark. Some people see it as a bit of a house, you know, like a little like a kid's how a kid would draw a house with a that's like the way a square. I, because yeah. that's I draw a house. Yeah, I don't see a king. <laughs> I too. see a house. I see a house. <laughs> so the first interesting star of Cepheus is Delta Cepheus, which unfortunately doesn't have a name. I guess it's just not bright enough, but mm. it's such an important star. I feel the IAU should give it a name, you know? And the reason Delta Cepheus, now Delta Cepheus, it's kind of like in the foundation of the house, if you call it. It's at one corner of the house and the foundation. That's the farthest south one, the farthest mm. one away from Polaris. Hard to pick out in a crowd, but um, it's worth looking at. Oh, yeah. It's a magnitude three and a half, and it gave... It gave its name to the class of variable stars called Delta Cepheids. It's the classic Delta Cepheid variable, and it happens to be a double star. And it has, it varies so much that it has a couple of different spectral classifications, and it's a yellow supergiant. Now, here's the thing. Why is this star important? And this, it, you know, without this, it's hard to imagine how astronomers could figure out how big the universe is, because this is really super important. Somebody figured out that the period of oscillation of these kinds of, of this star in particular and other similar stars, that the period was related to their absolute magnitude, so their inherent luminosity. Somebody figured that out. I don't know the full story, but there was this period-luminosity relation. So if you can measure the period, then you know how absolute bright it is. And then if you look at what it looks like, what its apparent magnitude is, you can do some pretty simple math and figure out how far away it is because absolute magnitude of a star is what it would look like one astronomical unit away. So that's a number. So if it looks like fifth magnitude, you can do the math and you can figure out how far away it is. So once they discovered these Cepheid variables, they started being able to measure, you know, how big the Milky Way was. They was finding these stars. Oh my, my God, the Milky Way is that big, right? No. And then they started finding these Cepheid variable stars in, in other nebula, like the Andromeda galaxy. And this is the cracker thing. This is where they discovered, like the Andromeda galaxy was not in our own galaxy, but in fact, you know, what is it, 2 million light years away? Mm-hmm. And this is crucial to cosmology that, that not only were these things far away, but they were outside our own galaxy. This was huge in 20th century astronomy. Yes. It was Henrietta Swan Levitt who Yes. Who... Okay. She does on that discovered the relation. Yep. And I apologize for not knowing the name. I knew I couldn't remember who it was. I should have done more research, but I knew you'd be on the show, Chris. And <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite stars for that reason. Yeah. It's a... Yeah. No, it's it's 
it, it's so fundamental to our knowledge of, of the universe mm. that you would think like if such a thing didn't exist, how would we have ever, ever figured it out? You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's that fundamental. So that's why you should know that star. And so go and go ahead and have a look at it and uh, just look at it and think about that while you're looking at it and see if you can see the double. Okay. The final star in the list is Mu Cepheus, Cephei, Mu Cephei. Again, it doesn't have an IAU designation, but I think it was Herschel or somebody Herschel. called it the, Gar Herschel's the Garnet Star, Gar the Garnet Star. And it's called the Garnet Star because it has a deep red color. It is an M2. And that, I don't think we've had many M stars in this series. So it is about the reddest star in the sky, and it's a supergiant. It's not terribly bright, and it's a variable star. But if you can train your telescope on it, you will see definitely the red color. I think you'll need a certain amount of aperture to see the color. Chris, you can help me out with that or shame. Yeah, I, I've observed it quite a bit. Even in small scopes, you can see the color. Definitely once you get around okay. yeah. 8-inch aperture, it, the, the color okay. begins to but, shine. But binoculars wouldn't show it, though. It, they will a little bit. Like It's it's yeah. a bit of a sliding scale. To the unaided eye, the color is very subtle, but... But on on a summer evening, if Cepheus is up, I'm looking. I'm going to take a look yeah. at that star at some mm -hmm. point during the night. And it, and it, it's a very remarkable star for, for many reasons. Uh, it has a it's a multiple star system of six components. It's mm -hmm. a, a large number of components. the The primary star is so large that if it was our sun, the the surface of the star would out would be out between Jupiter and Saturn, like oh, that wow. big. It would be that big. It's, and it's extremely luminous. It's it's uh, absolute magnitude is minus seven. So it's it's one of the even though it's, it looks like a dim red star to us, it's it's actually a very bright star, and it's only dim because it's two two thousand four hundred light years away. Mm -hmm. And again, it gives its name to another type of, of variable, the mu Cepheid irregular variable class. So it varies, but it varies irregularly. It doesn't have a period. And Betelgeuse is a mu Cepheid variable. So we were talking about Betelgeuse last time about its irregularity and how everybody thought it was going to blow up and become a supernova. And mu Cepheus will eventually become a supernova, probably, you know, no time soon. But uh, again, worth really looking for. I remember... Uh, Putting it in the telescope, I think my eyes are not very red sensitive. I figured this out over the years. And I was looking for it, and I couldn't make it out. And a friend of mine who is not at all astronomically uh, aligned looked in the telescope, eyepieces. He saw it right away. He said, oh, yeah, there's that red star. And I said, what? And I went back and said, no, yeah, you're right. But he saw it right away, and, and he had no experience with telescopes. I could never see the uh, North American Nebula by eye. I, oh, really? I try and I try and I try. And and I, people like Blair and McDonald say, oh, there it is. There it is. I can see it. And I'm going, darn you. I can't see it. I have to really work hard to see it. <laughs> so, and I need optical aid. So I think I just have a, a poor red sensitivity. I don't know. It must be my misspent youth or... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe drinking too much beer. I... <laughs> Not enough amber ale, too many stouts. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So so I, I think you'll agree. I know you will agree, Chris, and probably Shane, that, that these stars that I've done are not are not brilliant stars, but they're all very interesting for one reason or another. And the last two are particularly interesting, mm -hmm. even though they're not that visually striking. 
at first, right? Hard to find. Yeah. But that brings us to a close. Yeah, this has been great, Dave. Um, These are all very interesting stars. Like I'm really enjoying just learning, you know, and and some of the other details about these stars that I was unaware of. Uh, This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. Um, when, when I do the research for this, like I have to, I have to figure out where to stop because I'm just scratching the surface, right? There's so much you could say about almost every one of these stars, constellations and whatnot. It's, it, it's just everything. It's so deep, the history and, and the, the relevance. What strikes me about them is how different they all are, right? Mm-hmm. You, you start thinking they're all, they're all quite the same, but they're not. They're very different in, in many ways. And you come across these unusual stars, you know, that are unusually bright or unusually spinning or, you know, so th- there's so much to, to learn about stars. Well, I, I really enjoyed this, Dave, for, for a couple of reasons. One of them was originally I had thought, and I had said this to Shane when I first saw the notes come through, that we were going to do the spring stars and then the northern stars because I just thought, oh, the northern stars just yeah so much there. And then and then when I got the notes, I said, oh, we got the northern stars next. I was hoping to the spring stars, but uh, oh, well, whatever. And then when I, I was busy this week and finally when I had a chance to sit down with the notes on uh, – well, whenever it was, I went, Oh, these are great. These are, this is yeah. really, really good. <laughs> so yeah, like, yeah. People are going to love these. <laughs> well, I don't know why I went to the polar next. Uh, Cause we had the four seasons to deal That's with. All good. And then I thought, well, if we do the spring stars now, I figure I needed to space things out just a little bit more. Right. And yeah. in fact, in fact, when we get to the fall stars, you know, we're going to do the fall stars in September, which strictly speaking is late summer. Anyway, uh, I wanted to just stretch things out a bit. And I, when I started looking at what I was going to do, I said, yo, no, these are going to work. They're going to like these when once they get used to the idea. I really like this. And if if you do make this a book, I'm going to actually make the suggestion here, maybe put the Northern Stars first, because getting that orientation with with Thuban and, and Merak as the pointer stars, finding Polaris and that. And you know how when you open up the star, your star chart, it starts with the north and kind of at the end of the book, it has the south polar stars. It's, it would kind of reflect that. But uh, I think this is just a great selection. I was, well, I was so enthused. Chris, you're absolutely correct. In fact, in my mind's eye, the way I organized the list in the first place, because I have this tremendous uh, spreadsheet of, of stars with all this information. In. And in fact, I did start Northern po- Polar Stars. Okay. It's just it's just that the timeline that we decided to do this yeah. on, it just seemed like if we didn't do the winter stars right away, yeah, we were going uh, we to have to wait till mm-hmm. next year, because otherwise, if we did the pole stars, and if I was doing the winter stars now, it's like winter's kind of over and yeah. uh it just seemed to be the right one to do besides which uh they were just the winter stars are just so brilliant right like how could you not like them uh, they're easy to like and this one's a bit more work the pole the northern polar stars are a bit more work but but they're, they're, they've got fascinating stories all the same so i had the same feeling as you it's like how am i gonna make how am i gonna make this interesting you know um, but, uh, when I got into it, I got really excited about it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And- well, gee, Dave, thank you for an excellent selection. I'm really looking forward to hearing what the listeners have to say and, uh, very quickly give the last word to Shane to see if he has anything to add to the show. Just thanks, Dave. Uh, really enjoyed it. Looking forward to the next one. I'll make my list and check it twice <laughs> and I'll send it to you for your approval. Thanks everybody for listening. 
We want your observations and sketches, as well as any photos you might have of Messier 51, M51 for a soon-to-be-announced show starring Alistair Ling. He's going to come on, and we're going to do a whole show on M51. Send them to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. 